Welcome to Our Lord's Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit OLCC.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at OLCCOKC. We're in uh, part four in our series on Revelation. We looked at chapter one and we saw that the book of Revelation is a revelation of the person of Jesus. First and foremost, it's about him. And we saw in chapter one also that the book of Revelation is a letter from the Holy Trinity, from the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it continues to speak to us today, doesn't it? Hopefully some of you are finding that. I'm hearing some of you are praying and and reading through it chapter by chapter. Chapter one also described the promised Messiah King. This is the one that Daniel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, they all prophesied is coming and in the first century he came. He's the resurrected Lord. And if you remember, we've been saying each week that in order to interpret the book of Revelation, we look at first and foremost what it said to the original audience. And then we ask, based on that, what is it saying to us? We're going to see that today in this letter to the church at Ephesus. And I want us to think about this. In the coming weeks, again, we are constantly asking, what am I learning about Jesus and his work in the church? What am I learning about Jesus and his church and his kingdom? And that helps us steer through these very interesting 22 chapters that we're gonna be exploring. I've also mentioned that every three weeks or so, we're gonna stop, we're gonna hit pause for a minute and have what I call an interlude so that we can catch our breath a little bit and change the pace a little. So that helps us make it through the entire book in a more fruitful way. So today, if you wanna open up your Bible and if you look around, we've got Pew Bibles here. And I've mentioned this in past weeks that we actually have the NIV version and we have the New Revised Standard, the NRSV, so you have a choice. The NIV is Navy and the black is the NRSV and you can choose between those two. So we're looking at this letter to Ephesus and we saw in the first chapter there's seven churches that are addressed and this is the first one. This is the first city, the first church in the city of Ephesus. And it's first in sequence here, but it's also first in influence. And the church was located in the city of Ephesus, which was called the supreme metropolis of Asia. So it was kind of a little mini New York City right there in Asia Minor. It was a chief seaport. Around this time, it was about 250,000 people, which was a massive city. I want us to read. Why don't we stand, and then we'll look a little bit more at Ephesus, and then we're going to look at this letter to Ephesus. So I'm going to read Revelation 2, 1 to 7, then we'll dig in. 
Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know that you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember then from what you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Let anyone who has an ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. So in order to understand this a little more, sketching out some of the background of the city of Ephesus, the supreme metropolis, the supreme city, very interesting that the city of Ephesus was actually called the temple warden of the goddess of Artemis. It's a Greek goddess. She was also known as Diana in Latin. And so right there in the middle of the city in Ephesus was a massive temple dedicated to Artemis. I think I have an image up there. This is a replica that's actually been rebuilt based on some of the original plans. This one's in Istanbul. But think about this. A couple thousand years ago, this was massive. It was 350 feet long, 180 feet wide, 60 feet high. These pillars, about the size of a football field. And it was the center right there in Ephesus for many magical and superstitious practices, idolatry, sexual immorality, temple prostitution. And when you read the book of Acts, Ephesus crops up in chapter 19, and we see that Jesus decided through some of his followers to plant a church right in this metropolis, right there where this was going on. Jesus said, I will build my church in Ephesus. And so through a couple named Aquila and Priscilla, a church was planted in Ephesus. And at that moment, friends, a spiritual war was declared in Ephesus through Jesus, through his followers. And it was resounding, Jesus Christ is Lord, not Artemis. Jesus is Lord not the emperor. Jesus is here to save and heal and to set up shop and to plant his church. And so this is some of the backdrop of this letter. It's important to see. The church in Ephesus, after Acts 19, it went on in the following decades to become a key center for evangelism and disciple making. And many different leaders served there. 
I've already mentioned Priscilla and Aquila, this couple that planted churches in Asia Minor. The Apostle Paul spent over two years there. Apollos. Paul appointed Timothy, the young leader, to serve in Ephesus. The Apostle John himself resided in Ephesus. So a really, really important city and an important church. And this letter is going to be addressed to them probably around 90 AD. Now as we look at this, you can see from when we read it, these seven verses, there's a lot going on there, isn't there? There's a lot happening and a lot uh, to work through. And as people study this, they point out seven features. And so what we're going to do quickly is look at the seven features in these seven verses, and then I'm going to really focus on a few of them, especially the part about recovering first love. So I believe that's what the Lord wants us to focus on this morning. So beginning at verse 1 here, you can see this command for this to be written to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. Now we saw last Sunday, what in the world is this? The angel of the church, for those of you that weren't here, we saw that scripture suggests that each church, each local body has an angel that watches over it. Now I didn't mention this, but it may also suggest that these letters are addressed to a particular messenger. So you have a heavenly guardian of the church, but it also may be addressing a particular human messenger. The word angelos means angel literally, but it can also mean a human messenger. You see this in the Old Testament. I think it's Malachi 2 where the Lord says, I will send my angelos, my messenger. So I think it's probably both of these. So it's commanded to be written to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Now, very quickly, it focuses, secondly, on a description of Jesus. Because if it's a revelation of the person of Jesus and his work in the church and his establishment of the kingdom, then it's about him. So how does it describe him? Verse 1 there, he is the one, Jesus, the one who is speaking is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. We saw this last week, that this means many things, but it really means that Jesus holds all the authority over his church, his seven churches. Now, we saw that there's lots of symbols in this letter, right? And oftentimes it will explain or define them. And so it's a reminder from chapter one, the intro, the prologue to the letter. This is the one who's speaking, the one who holds all authority, the Lord of all the churches, the Lord of the angel armies is the one who's addressing here. Secondly, it is also saying that he is the one who walks among the seven lampstands. Can you remember what that meant? What do the lampstands represent? The churches. That's right. So when we look at this vision that John is having and now he's explaining a message that flows out of the vision, this is the one who is speaking, the one who is walking among and intimately acquainted. He has firsthand knowledge of his people and he cares for them. And his eyes are the ones that we saw are filled with fire, with the fire of love and discernment. So he is the one who is speaking. 
The third part or feature of this letter, look at verses two through three, is a commendation. Basically, a, an affirmation of the church's good works, right? And this is the happy part of it, right? I, have, I know your works, verses two and three, and he explains what those are. Your toil, your patience, your endurance, your intolerance of evildoers, your discernment regarding false teachers and apostles, bearing up for the sake of my name, not growing weary. These are good people, aren't they? These are good people in a pretty wild city. John was zealous for these things. John, who was speaking and recording this on behalf of Jesus, the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 1, that we're to test the spirits. And so he's commending the church at Ephesus for doing that. You've tested these people, their teaching, the fruit of their lives, and you've found many of them to be false apostles. They're not sent in the name of Jesus. They're doing something that's destructive for the church. And so they're being commended for that. Well done, church at Ephesus. You're discerning well. Along with that, they're zealous for accurate teaching, aren't they? Part of that, part of the way you discern whether something is true or untrue is you know the truth. I've heard people talk about the way that you can identify phony dollar bills is by handling real dollar bills. And so you can sit there and hold a 10, a 20, a 50, and you can feel even the fibers and you get so accustomed to it, so when a phony one comes through, you can identify it. Well, the church at Ephesus was doing that. They knew what was phony teaching, and so they were good at discerning. Skip down to verse six. This is another commendation, something that's being commended about them. He says, this is also to your credit. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. Let's say that together, Nicolaitan. Nicolaitan. Well, Brock, who are these people? I don't know who they are. <laughs> They're only mentioned in this chapter, in this letter, and then to another church, the works of the Nicolaitans. And so this is it, this reference here in this chapter. But what's interesting is when you look further down in the next letter, verse 14, they seem to be connected with another group that's infiltrated the church, a sect that's related to the teaching of Balaam and to the teaching of Jezebel. And so both of those characters from the Old Testament did two things. When they infiltrated the people of God or influenced them, they encouraged idolatry. They wanted to see God's people bowing the knee to idols. And then the second thing was sexual immorality. Much of what was happening in that temple that we saw earlier. So Jesus is saying through John, well done, Ephesus. You've sniffed this out and you have seen that these people are problematic and I'm glad. You've seen it, you've discerned it, and they're being called to account. In some ways, Ephesus might be like contemporary doctrinally sound churches. 
man, they are into the accurate. Do you teach the Bible? Do you teach orthodoxy? Do you teach the scriptures? These are good things, aren't they? All of those things are good, but the fourth feature here, look down at verse four. That is not the full picture. There's a correction here in verses four through five. What's it say? Along with your good works and what I commend you for, I have this against you. And again, really important to realize the spirit behind this. This is not checkpoint Jesus. What happens at a checkpoint? Those of you that have been to Eastern Europe or somewhere else, heck, maybe America in the future, checkpoints. What happens at a checkpoint? See your ID, papers. Or could be, I'm gonna look over your car from bumper to bumper. Could be another checkpoint. When I lived in California, we would actually have our cars regularly evaluated and it was air pressure had to be right, emissions. It was thorough and if you were out of line, it was trouble. Could be a fine. This is not checkpoint Jesus. He is not setting up a checkpoint and hammering the church at Ephesus. One pastor says, this is gardener Jesus. This is someone who loves, who tenderly cares for his church. So yes, this is a correction, but it comes out of deep compassion and love and affection because Jesus is looking at that church and saying, this has got to survive and thrive here. It's got to be a beachhead for the kingdom established in the heart of this dark place. So I care for it. We could also say it's like Coach Jesus. Anybody had a really good but tough coach? Boy, do I have memories. Probably need some inner healing over that. Coach George, boy. And he was like this. I mean, he would look at individual players and look at the team and say, I've got some correction. I love you. I affirm you, but there's some things you gotta work on. Otherwise, you are going to get your head knocked off in the next football game. And so Jesus, Coach Jesus, is looking at the church with those piercing eyes, and he's saying, I've got some things to point out so that you can survive and thrive and grow into full maturity. Again, we'll see the letter as it unfolds, describes him as a bridegroom. He is filled with love and affection and tenderness and kindness and lays down his life for the church then and now. So as we look at what he has to say, it's important to see what does he say here? They need correction because what has happened? They've fallen from a certain place. He says in verse four, I have this against you that you've abandoned the love that you had at first. What does that mean? I think many things swirl around in interpreting this. I think it's beautifully ambiguous. It doesn't necessarily spell it out. It includes various things, but when Jesus talks about recovering or recapturing the love that you had at first, think about what Jesus taught in the Gospels, Mark 12. Jesus boils the whole Christian faith, all of discipleship down to something. What is it? What is most important? One of the religious leaders asks him. And he says, 
love the Lord your God with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So Jesus says all of Scripture, all of the law, all of the prophets are saying this. It's about love. If you're going to follow me, then it's going to be a life, a journey based on, infused with, filled with love for God and neighbor. One orthodox theologian calls it cardiac Christianity. There is no other Christianity other than cardiac Christianity. Christianity of the heart. Christianity that flows from the place of love. And they've abandoned it. They've lost it. And Jesus is inviting them to rekindle it, to recapture it, to see it restored. I want you very quickly to look at 1 John 4, 19. Look there, I don't have this on a slide, but Jesus is talking about first love. First love. The love that you had at first. 1 John 4, 19. Again, John most likely authored the revelation, and we're looking at his epistle, his letter, 1 John 4, 19, and what's it say? We love because he first loved us. So friends, there is no returning to first love without realizing who loved us first. The Father loves us. You don't just muster up love for God. Oh, I've lost it and somehow I'm gonna grip my teeth and get on the Christian gerbil wheel. No, no, no. If you want to return to first love, you realize who loved you first, who loved me first. The Father's first love is what kindles and restores our first love. And so today, with you, I'm saying, Father, would you rekindle it? I want to recapture the essence of Christianity, cardiac Christianity, Christianity from the heart. And in order to do that, I've got to receive love from you. So would you take us and put us under your waterfall daily through your word, through the truth of your scriptures? Another thing that's interesting here about the first love that they've lost, according to the teachings of Jesus, it is love for God. and We have to receive it from the Father. But it's interesting, Matthew 24 Jesus talks about the love of many growing cold in the last days. And then he talks about endurance, but then he says at verse 14, the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed. So Jesus himself is linking love and the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And so most likely what Jesus is suggesting is he's telling Ephesus, yes, it's about loving God, it's about loving your neighbor, but it's also about taking the gospel of the kingdom to the ends of the earth, to the nations, and that is love. So Jesus, with the church at Ephesus and with us, is inviting us to receive love from the Father, to respond back to him, and then to be set on fire and sent out wherever we are might be the sphere of life here in Oklahoma, like the Milners that might be launching out to somewhere, planting a church. 
But the love of God is fiery and restorative and missional. This is sobering. Jesus says, if this doesn't happen, if you don't return to the place of first love, then I will come and remove your lampstand. And the whole point of the lampstand is to give witness, right? A lampstand burns with oil and radiates light. And so what Jesus is saying is, you're low on the oil. You need an infusion of love. Otherwise, you're going to burn out, and I will have to come and remove your lampstand. One other thing here, and this is where I wanted to spend most of the time here. It's really kind of the heart of the message. Return to that place of first love. If you think about the church at Ephesus and what they were born, that moment where the church was born, you can read about it in Acts 19. It's powerful. It's interesting to see that part of their first love was being born out of revival. These were pagans. These were folks that were going to that temple, engaged in idolatry, sexual rituals, these kinds of things. And so part of their first love was being rescued and saved from that. The power of God hit the city of Ephesus. Acts 19 talks about it. Miracles were happening. The apostles were there driving demons out of people who were oppressed. People were leaving the worship of Artemis. Some of you know this story. And what did they burn? Right there, right in the center, the center of the city. Their magic books. It's like their devotional, their pagan devotional books. And so Jesus is reminding them from where they've come. Hey, you were born in revival. You've seen signs and wonders. You've seen deliverance. You've seen demons driven out of you and other people. Remember, return, remember what I've done for you. Reflect on that. I love you and I want you to have that first love restored. A fifth thing here at verse five. And frankly, this is connected to restoring first love. What does Jesus say at verse five? Remember from where you've fallen. And then that six-letter word there, repent. And do the works you had at first. As I was reflecting on this, I thought, there's three R's here. Remember, repent, and redo. So a practical takeaway from this, if you are sensing that you need to return to that place of first love, you need to have that rekindled, well, Here's three practical things you can do right here. Remember, reflect on some of those initial moments when you began to realize who Jesus was, how much he loved you, what he had done for you, what he set you free from, looking back over your shoulder at that previous life that you lived. Remember that. Remember and repent. Oftentimes this gets misunderstood, but the word metanoia or metaneo and Greek means simply to turn from whatever you're mired in to turn from sin to turn from a certain perspective and turn to God so it's really a worshipful act repentance is worship at its heart remember repent turn to God and then redo the work you did at first so I'm sure the church at Ephesus those early believers did the same things that we do they gather together 
they worship, they celebrate the Lord's Supper, and then daily in their homes, they read the scriptures, they prayed, they spent time with the Lord, they got under the waterfall of the Father's love each day. So redo, revisit those things, Jesus is saying. The sixth thing here, get close to wrapping up, verse seven, another exhortation. There's an instruction to repent. There's another exhortation, verse seven. You'll notice on the slide sometimes here, look at number six here. I've got two, chapter two, verse seven, and then A. I want to explain what that is. That means the first part of the verse, right? So you can look at the first part of verse seven, seven A. What's it say? It's an exhortation to listen. Anyone who has an ear to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And friends, that, that's what we're doing this morning. We're saying, Lord Jesus, speak to us. We have ears to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. It's you speaking, verses 1 and 2, the Almighty King Jesus, but you speak through your Spirit. And we want to be the kind of people that listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit, who are filled with the Spirit, who prize the words of the Spirit in Scripture. In the letter here at verse 7, the second part of it closes with a promise, ends on a good note. It's been encouraging, it's been challenging. Jesus has probed into the very heart of the church at Ephesus, and he ends with this promise here. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. I want to read something here from, again, George Ladd, the great kingdom theologian. Listen to what he says. Just bear with me. It's so rich. If you'll hang on the words, it's worth it. Listen to what he says. This note of victory resounds in each of the seven letters. Although the revelation forecasts the terrible domination of evil in the person of the Antichrist in the last days, listen to this, it is in reality a prophecy of the victories to be won by Jesus and his church. You hear that? It is a prophecy of the victories won by Jesus. He goes on to say the idea of conquering suggests warfare. The Christian life is an unrelenting warfare against the powers of evil. It is a victory analogous to the victory won by Jesus himself, even though it involved his death on a cross. So friends, even in these moments where it's heavy, this is a prophecy about Jesus and a prophecy in this letter in particular of the victory that he's already accomplished. And as your pastor, I am obligated to walk through passages like this and tell us it's time to sober up. It's time to wake up. It's time to look into our hearts and say, where am I in the first love? How's my first love tank? How connected am I to Jesus? He really wants to be with me each day, wants to spend time with me. How's that going? in preparation for life, 
Because as this book is going to show us, as this letter is going to show us, to walk with Jesus is war. It's a battle. Anybody else feel that in your own soul in this hour? I certainly do. It is war. It is a battle. And that's why we use that spiritual army metaphor. So this ends with a great promise. And these two things essentially to eat from the tree of life that is in the paradise of God. Think back to what is this referencing in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. What did it mean to walk in the garden in paradise? This word is related to it. Paradise is garden. Meant to be with the Lord. Meant to be with the Creator. So it's about the presence of God. That's what this is a promise of victory, and it's a promise to experience the presence of God, to be sustained by the fruit of his trees, to be with him in his presence and fellowship. So friends, this letter here is full of encouragement for us.